I feel as if everyone can think of some glaringly obvious examples of companies that have missed the mark with their content. Whether that's a Pepsi ad that's inadvertently offensive, or whether that's a collaboration with an influencer that makes the target demographic roll their eyes. Far too often, we see paid and own media that makes you think, how was this idea not shut down in the boardroom? But these are just the examples that are conspicuously ineffective. What doesn't come to mind are the hundreds, maybe thousands, of pieces of content from companies that you've seen that are simply meh. The goal for that content was of course for it to persuade you, but you're left feeling simply unamused or uninterested. It's forgettable. Patrick Jaeger is about solutions for this problem. In this conversation, Patrick and I discuss his reverse-engineered content model, in which you start with the why when conceptualizing content. What effect do we want to have? Who is our end user? These are some of the questions that Patrick's model looks to take on in order to lead you to the correct piece of content. And while this conversation was originally going to be about just the reverse-engineered content model, I'm really happy with the direction we ended up taking this chat. Patrick and I discuss quite in-depth the ways in which creatives should be navigating their careers, and the importance to thinking outside of the box in 2020, almost 2021. Enjoy. Alrighty, well, to discuss content and the very creative routes that brands and companies can take, uh, so happy to have Patrick Jager with us today. Hello, very nice to see you. And yeah. I actually am seeing you. I know it's a podcast, but I like that we're actually looking at one another. It makes the biggest difference. Absolutely. Uh, when I've done these where it's just audio, thankfully it has gone well, but you do get a little self-conscious. I want I want to see you yeah. question what I'm saying with your eyes as <laughs> I uh, lay out a question. All but, right, great. I make hold on. I'm making a note. Question. Good. Done. <laughs> there you go. All right. You get the system. Well, um, fantastic. So Patrick, uh, just jumping into it, uh, yeah. if you could speak a little bit to your very deep background. I don't want to just read off your LinkedIn because I think it would take the whole 45 minutes here, but uh, your background in media uh, yeah. and really, I guess, why you're somebody that's so important to talk to as we think about content. Well, I first and foremost, thank you very much for having me on and for that nice buildup. I hope I can live up to it. Um, I... I think the easiest way to describe my background is circuitous. I have not gone to school for anything I've done. Um, I have a passion for learning and kind of thinking how we connect the dots. Um, I, but I didn't really have a, a, a direction. I went to college, did a poli sci degree, you know, thought I'd do the law school thing because all my fraternity brothers were doing that. 
I ended up uh, moving back to Europe. I had studied abroad, then I moved back and worked there for a little bit. And I worked a lot of odd jobs, but they were really interesting. The Austrian Wine Marketing Association. I taught English. I helped a friend run his cafe. Um, then when I came back, I got into nonprofit work. I was in fundraising. And this was in uh, Southern California. And that was really fun and really cool because it was stuff I was I was very passionate about. I was doing fundraising for AIDS and cancer charities. And this was at a time where to talk about AIDS or cancer, but mostly AIDS in conservative Orange County, California, um, was not an easy sell, but I was really good at it. Um, I got recruited for a for-profit healthcare company to run their marketing department. I will say I've never taken a business course of any kind in my history. Uh, so that was interesting. From there, I got laid off in a merger and at 25 had more money than I'd ever seen and uh, got into PR in Beverly Hills. So I became a publicist, again, never taken a journalism class or a communications class. Um, and then I decided I really wanted to get into entertainment. We were living in LA, that made sense. So I started temping all around the LA area trying to figure out what my niche was. And I was doing rights and clearances, which is the legal side of uh, licensing for shows. And I was doing rights and clearances for an A&E biography that Entertainment Tonight was doing. Entertainment Tonight is part of Paramount. So they had this huge archive. And um, the executive producer said, you're really, really good at this. Why don't you come in and produce one? So never taken a, uh, any kind of journalism class again, never taken anything in film or television. And my first one, I won some awards for, <clears throat> excuse me, and realized I'm pretty good at this. So um, I stayed in that. I did a bunch of a &E biographies, then did a bunch of VH1 Behind the Musics. That got me into a bunch of music programming. That got me into award shows. That got me into kids stuff. So I've kind of, it's it just kind of been. But I think that the, the cornerstone of that was look for the niches that people weren't filling, A. B, be clear of what you know how to do and market that. Don't lie about what you can't, but try to make sure you can figure out how to do those things. And C, feed into your passion. And that's really what I try to teach my kid and, and uh, people that I mentor now. Yeah. Wow. There it is. There's the full biography. Should we end the podcast Sorry. here or no? Sorry. That's, I'd like um, to say I could do a Reader's Digest version. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Um, and yeah, I think the first thing I'd really want to dive in there is, you know, you've had a lot of experience, I guess, if we're starting with you in entertainment, you were in traditional Los Angeles going through the Hollywood structure now, obviously, you're talking to me out of Denver, Colorado. Granted, everything is work from home, but really speaking to a lot of media uh, is much more digital. Uh, and that's really the direction that things are headed. So I guess, is this always where you anticipated being? But also, what are the challenges that you faced in those Hollywood years? And how has that really helped you conquer things in the digital space? So the... I, there's an analogy I like to use about being a producer. Um, people would say, oh, you're an executive producer. You must know so-and-so. And I'd say, well, think about media like, or you can think of this in any industry, but I like to describe media like being a doctor. 
there's a big difference between being a podiatrist and a brain surgeon. What I do, the type of media I do, is somewhere around plastic surgery. You know, it's reality television. It's unscripted television. Some of it's required, but a lot of it's superficial, and it's feel-good. Um, I was very lucky that when I was coming up, there was more demand than there was supply. So being fresh and new and trying something worked to my advantage. Um, it wasn't always the case for everybody, but I really found that for me. Um, I think that the hardest part about LA, the, I mean, there's three. One is it's very um, who's pretty and who, you know, who, who fits the bill. So there's a lot of that. Who wants to play the game? And I played the game for a long time. And then um, the game kind of crashed around me. I, I got sober because I couldn't play the game anymore uh, in L.A. Uh, and not that everybody's, you know, on drugs and drunk. Uh, but there's definitely a, an image thing in L.A., much more so than I think New York or, or the outlier Chicago, San Francisco, Denver. Um, but the other thing is, I quickly found that I didn't want to play in the same sandbox as everybody else. I didn't care if I worked on the show that was going to get the Emmy Award. I didn't care if my show uh, had swanky parties. I cared about making stuff that I actually believed in, that I actually thought I could move the needle in. And so that was kind of the niche. And digital, quite frankly, was not, not around. There were digital folks and there were television folks. And a lot of that is because digital, the price point for making digital was so low that if you were a television person, you couldn't afford to have a digital arm of your company because you could never make enough money to make it profitable. Um, it wasn't until I got out of television day to day, and that happened well after I moved to Denver and I, I was able to develop some really cool shows that are well known and um, but then I went out on my own. And one of the reasons I went out on my own was I didn't want to be known as a TV guy. I wanted to be known as a content guy. And there's a huge difference. The definition of content is, in my opinion, anything that ultimately connects you with whoever your client is. The written word, the visual, the audio, and the video. Yeah. And, you know, I think you're also speaking to something that... I feel over the past five years, I've been so fascinated with where, you know, even for myself, uh, you know, when I was thinking long, long ago, oh, I want to wind up in entertainment. That's a very broad term, but it was, oh, well, you know what that means? That means I have to go to a talent agency's mailroom and then I have to work my way up from there. Um, and of course, now I think that is kind of a, a limiting path, especially when there are so many different ways to, I guess, work in that incredibly broad uh, umbrella of the word entertainment. Um, so yep. I guess instead thinking about it as I want to produce content, um, how does that work for somebody who just knows, hey, I want to go into entertainment? Um, because I, what I felt, and it seems like you're speaking to as well, is don't think about it so myopically as... I need to go to the mailroom or I need to be the PA and then work my way up from there, but rather think here is content. Content is everywhere. How can I really yeah. tap into that? It's really interesting that you say this because there, there are 
multiple schools of thought. The biggest school of thought is that you work your way up in the thing that you do and that thing that you do is all you will do. Now, a lot of that comes out of the you know, the fact that we have unions in, in a lot of industries in the entertainment area where if you're a gaffer, you're working your way up in that union. I am in the producer's guild. It's not a union, it's a guild, but producer is a very broad term. Um, but the other thing is that we are at a time where generalists that have deep knowledge I think have a much stronger opportunity than people that are specific. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a great a, a great example. I once was looking for new shooters and editors. You know, the great thing about digital is it is equalized creativity. TikTok is a great example. I can watch TikTok for three hours, and I probably shouldn't be because I'm like the creepy guy in the white van when I'm on TikTok, <laughs> but I can watch TikTok for hours because the creativity is so amazing. So that equality has made it really cool for people like me that wanna groom new creatives. So I did this thing with multiple universities where I did, this is when I was at a production company. We said, if you come up with a pitch for a show and you do your own sizzle, you shoot it and edit it, the winning one we will bring to market and try to sell and you will be attached to it. I didn't, I didn't care about the show idea. I was looking for who has great camera chops and doing things that I could never think of and same thing with editing. So I went into this uh, film school to tell them about this and we're talking and they could not care at all. They looked at me like I had seven heads because they all thought of themselves as auteurs. And I stopped and I said, all right, let me get this straight. I'm getting the sense that none of you like me being here and that none of you would deign think about being doing a reality show. Well, two things. You need to decide if you are doing this for the art or the commerce. And if you're doing it for the art, not one of you is the next Scorsese. You might be you, but you're not Scorsese. If you're doing it for commerce, you sure as heck better be willing to do, I was about to cuss by the way, so I don't know if you're a PC group or not, so I didn't, but you sure as blank better be willing to do all kinds of things and adapt. And I think that's the thing for anyone that wants to get into creativity is you need to perpetually be looking at the pivot and how you adapt and what you can do to circumvent roadblocks. Because those roadblocks are there for a reason. There are vastly too many people with iPhones that can create content. It's not hard. So how do you make sure that we separate the wheat from the chaff? And if you want to move forward, you better be able to pivot and think through what someone else might not be doing and be willing to do absolutely anything. I mean, I, as an executive producer, have cleaned up crap, have washed toilets, as, as, as a head of shows have done that as, as a network person, because if you're not willing to do that, you know, then you're resting on your laurels of, I, I have this degree from so-and-so who cares. Yeah. And you know, as you talk about that, it, again, it brings me back to seeing your resume and seeing, okay, this is clearly 
not the most linear. We we go back to, I guess, <laughs> if you're a gaffer going through, hey, I'm first the assistant and then I'm the, uh, or maybe you start as the assistant to the assistant. For you, you really did not follow that very clear structure. And, um, right. you know, I think this is also where it gets very exciting to talk about some of that, uh, I guess, very diverse experience that you've had. Um, you know, right now, it seems that you're in a very interesting position where you are helping companies and brands produce their content, uh, whether that's direct to consumer and really just finding ways for it to relate. But would you have gotten here had you not gone from being a producer for the DNC convention, which I'm I'm desperate for you to talk about, or then doing some <laughs> reality television, um, yeah. really just showing how you can't think of it as this is a ladder, more, hey, this is how I need to sidestep in a constantly yeah. evolving industry. Um, it's interesting because there are those that would totally disagree with that statement and say, I paid my dues and now I'm, I have a lot of friends that make a ton of money and they're very good at what they do. That path exists. But when you're fighting a system, you know, I, I always talk about this with actors. There are between the three large acting guilds, there's 100,000 actors. There's not 100,000 jobs. So how do you stand out? And I think it is exactly what you said. It's being willing to, you know, it is the art of the pivot. How are you willing to look and say, this isn't getting me where I can go? But there is a caveat to that. And the, and the caveat is you have to be able to back it up. Far too many people, I'm going to sound old, sorry, but far too many people feel so entitled that, well, I, you know, I, I've done this one thing. My son, it drives me crazy when he's like, well, I know how to speak Spanish. No, you took three semesters of Spanish. You don't know how to speak Spanish. So if you want to get that job in Spain, you better hustle and learn Spanish. And I feel that way with anything. Like if you don't have the skills that you need, don't lie about it, don't bullshit it, but learn it. And so much of what's so cool right now is it's the diversity. There are so many ways to get in things, but there's there's also a lot of... Um, reality check right now you know the media giants just the media giants lost 13 billion dollars in value because of covid um the ad agencies are seeing spend slash talent agencies are furloughing massive numbers of people so the sheer number of people that are creative that are out in the market right now desperately looking for work means that people that are truly creative need to work that much harder and be willing to really think through what would it take for me to get to where I want to get and be able to be circuitous about it. Well, I can't get there right now, but I can do this. And maybe that can lead to that. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit. I hope that helped. Please, no, this is fantastic. And it's really that. It's if you're a creative uh, maybe it's time to prove it and create, you know, be creative in finding or creating your next opportunity that is outside of the standard structure that everybody else is following. Yeah, that's exactly right. That you nailed, you hit the nail on the head for sure. Fantastic. Uh, well, I'm glad. Um, so I guess then going back into what you're doing now, um, 
because again, I, I think this can speak to sort of the core thesis of this conversation is really thinking outside of the box uh, in terms of how you can be creative yep. and really bring value to companies. Um, you wrote an article not too long ago about the reverse engineering model mm -hmm. for producing content. And really this comes from a place, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to break my streak of, of perfectly articulating your philosophies here, but um, this really comes from there was a system that had been working for a very long time and probably was working in an era of when linear television was everything. Um, and now it's just a completely different landscape. Mm -hmm. Look at the viewing habits of millennials or Gen Z and how you target with content. If you're a company, back to what we're talking about, you have to be creative. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit more. Well, A, you're hired um, <laughs> to be my publicist, done. B, um, yeah. I, so this reverse engineering idea, I I like to build myself to my clients as an anti-agency. I have nothing against ad agencies. I have a lot of friends that work in ad agencies. I've done a lot of work with ad agencies. A lot of my clients, we have to do RFPs through ad agencies for certain things. But I do think that ad agencies very much like um, very much like television, was built on a big idea. If you have a big idea, that's what you need. You can figure out how to monetize that idea or evaluate that idea, but let's come up with a big idea. Let's come up with that thing. Oh my gosh, and that's gonna go viral. Like that, so much, we've pitched. That's how shows were pitched forever. You know, people, people would say, when Duck Dynasty was really hot, every network would say, what's our Duck Dynasty? Or I created a show for HG called Fixer Upper, and everyone's like, "What's our Fixer Upper?" It, it, that's you just trying to chase the big idea. So the whole idea of reverse engineering is to really bring in the same tools we use in marketing and sales and everywhere else, and it's thinking about your R, your return. Is it a return on investment? A return on engagement? A return on opportunity? And what are the KPIs? I love acronyms now that marketing has really given me a bunch of acronyms. Um, what are the KPIs that help you get that return? Once you've figured out what the end result is, then you start backtracking into what is the audience that gets me that end result? Where is that audience? How does that audience engage with wherever they are? So you come up with a bunch of parameters and then you come up with the idea. It's not about being the big idea. It's about being the right idea that can actually move the needle. You're seeing that right now with so much ad spend going away from television and going into digitals for a lot of reasons. A, it's vastly cheaper to make. B, you don't have to film it. It can be shot on an iPhone. C, um, you can you can you can see exactly how people are engaging with it versus waiting for a network to give you that information. Um, so you're seeing now this seismic shift, and too many people still are trying to back into results instead of build with results first. Right, and speaking to this seismic shift, um, it's interesting because it, it seems that the old model really was, and it's funny because now I think you look at it and you're like, how was this ever 
the way that people were focusing on things because it just does seem so counterintuitive to what you're suggesting. Um, but it really was big splash marketing of what's a big name, what's a big concept, what's just big and exciting. But clearly the future, and I, I'm really curious uh, to hear what your conversations are like with companies and how they understand this. Um, because this is really based out of, no, let's follow the data. Let's really show what are another great acronym, your you know customer acquisition cost. How is all of this going ah. to be our favorite? Uh, but you know, how is this all going to come back and, and really prove to be efficient? So was this birthed out of, hey, brands, this is the solution you're looking for? Or was this really coming from companies going, listen, we're done with this big splash marketing. I am, I am sick of this. This is a model that makes way more sense. You're shaking your head. So I know you got no, something to I say on this. I wish, I wish it was the companies that predicated that, but still too many. I mean, there are still too many people that are like, well, what worked for us last Christmas will work this Christmas. No, it won't. <laughs> because like everything has changed and it's not going to go back. So the idea of resting on your laurels and trying to do the same thing that you've done forever, you're just, you're beating your head into the wall. Cause as you said, you're coming up against new generations of people who could give a rat's blank about any of that. And they want to be engaged and they can sniff inauthenticity so quickly. It's one of the reasons I, I wonder how much TikTokers are really going to be able to monetize. You know, the, the, the day of the, of the PewDiePie type of influencer level, I wonder, because there's an inauthentic, there's a bar where you become very inauthentic. Like Charlie D'Amelio, I think is the most inauthentic young woman in the world. I think she's, you know, she's fun to watch for about five minutes, but she's just sitting there, you know, smiling. Like there's nothing that gets me saying, and granted, I'm not the demographic, but like, there are so many young people that I'm like, I will watch you for hours and I will do what you tell me to do because you have inspired me. You know, a lot of these kind of influencer types are not inspiring, they're just pretty. And vanity works, but I, you know, I go back to companies. If you only care about vanity, okay, you have a market, but when there is no such thing as a new idea anymore, and no matter what you do, someone else is doing it. I, you're, you have to think outside of vanity. But yeah, no, corporate, I, I, I talk uphill. Like I'll probably send this podcast to multiple corporations. Like you really do need to listen to me. And, and part of it is they're all tied to the agency model and the big idea model and the, the, and the traditional um, media uh, spend model. You know, and every, if you're thinking, if you th if you live your life thinking spots and dots, you're going to do work that's tied to spots and dots, and it's hard for people to think new. You know, content studios are become were starting to become very much in vogue, especially in like a Fortune 200. If you didn't have an in-house content studio, which basically pulled all of your social and um, direct engagement away from agencies and you brought it back in-house so that you could control how you speak. Some do it really, really well. Marriott Bonvoy does an amazing job with their direct one-on-one -on -one content studio, but they can afford it. 
If you're a Fortune 600, you're still a very well-known brand, but you probably can't afford to have that. That doesn't mean that, that, that therefore you should only do stuff that is predictable. Right. And I'm curious then. So you talk about the content models that you see not working. And in case there's any confusion for anybody listening right now, I guess if, and let's not throw any companies under the bus if you don't want to, I totally respect that. (laughs) So even if you want to just throw out a hypothetical, but what is often being seen by companies when they are producing content that you see obviously as just misguided versus how can take that same hypothetical or real company that we're about to discuss and what could they do that would be so much more strategically minded? So on the prior, rather than saying a company, I'm going to say an industry and that's the automakers. Automakers as a whole, especially as you looked at the beginning of the pandemic and quarantine and retail going to crap, car makers, you saw most of them really starting to pander because everybody else was. Or what do we know how to do really quickly? And it was not well thought out. Um, And it was very clear across all industries who was pandering just to stay in the zeitgeist versus who was willing to say, even if we go away from advertising right now or just do something that says, we got you, boo, and just call it a day. So that's a good example of they are so big and non-nimble that they weren't able to think through. You can say the same thing for retail in a lot of cases. One retailer that I think did an amazing job, and maybe it's because if they're listening, I want a job, um, is Lego. Lego used this idea of going home and spending time, and they really beefed up this idea of micro-edutainment. We're going to create things that are interesting, but also might help you with your kids. They, it might help you fill some time. It's going to feel. It's going to give you some nostalgia. It's going to give you a sense of camaraderie. Um, we're not going to take ourselves seriously. We are not curing cancer, but we are here to be a, pardon the pun, building block for you to have some normalcy and have a a sense of of hope. Now, many people might go, you are ridiculous if you think that Lego is that way. I can send you three case studies that demonstrate just how significant their sales were. Not because people had pandemic fear, like Clorox, but because people felt a need to, like people felt an affinity with real truth. So I think that those are two, I mean, very real examples right now. I don't, I I easily could think of others, but it is amazing right now how many people, like there are a few leaders that are trying new stuff and there's a lot of followers and then there's a lot of just schmata in the middle that isn't doing anything. Yeah, and talking about leaders versus followers, that goes back to something else I know you've discussed, which is, Who's innovating and who's emulating? 
because at the end of the day, the people that are emulating are almost never going to reach the status of the people who are innovating. So I guess when we think about content and companies that are producing content to really get the word out about whatever new product or service they're providing, who are the leaders and what are they really doing right now, November 2020, that shows leadership and real innovation as opposed to just following uh, you know, whatever model has historically worked or kind of just pandering in the case that we've seen with so many companies trying to jump on the COVID sympathizing bandwagon. Gosh, you should give me homework to be ready for that. But I think, I mean, I mean another... how about this? If not a no, company I got name. I got one. Okay. Uh, Airbnb has done some really amazing things because we can't travel right now. And so they've used their platform, knowing that what people are looking for is now they need a release from the fact that they can't travel right now. Um, and not in a way like, uh, I mean, it's a great counterpoint. When you look at what the airlines have done, which is nothing, or the cruise lines have done, which is nothing. I mean, on a myriad of reasons, that's probably wise. But Airbnb has said, let's celebrate travel and let's celebrate travel in a way that will say we're, we, we're ready for you when you're ready, but it's not in a cloying way. Um, and that took someone to have guts inside to say, all right, we can't do the same thing. Let's beta test this. Let's do some A-B testing. And the more people start talking like that, let's beta and let's A-B, you know it's not going to go well because people aren't really going to throw themselves into it. They are tiptoeing in cautiously, but there are so many ways to go. No, we only saw a 1x return in that or um, you know, we, it, we didn't hit our spend in week one. Um, well, going back to CAC, if... If you can't acquire right now because the service that you're doing isn't oper isn't able to function, and that's true on so much. That's true on live entertainment. That is true on travel. That is true on a lot of um, you know uh, luxury goods. Um, if that type of stuff is impossible, so if it's not about acquiring a a uh, a traveler. What do you do? This goes back to the whole reverse engineering. Okay, so if it's not about ROI anymore, is it ROE? Is it about engagement? And we want them to have a reason to come back to us so that when we do have time to pull the trigger, we're there again. Like I have zero loyalty to any airline right now because not one of them has done anything that makes me say I'm impressed by you. Now I get it. They've been decimated. But damn it, they've had an opportunity to do some cool stuff that they haven't done. Yeah. And wow. Well, uh, you know, now you have me thinking, because as we talk about Airbnb, um, the company you conjured without any homework beforehand. So uh, I give you props. But um, Airbnb, you know, that is an example of a company they realize, OK, what do our customers love? They love travel. How can we still deliver that message? But you bring up a really good point. Airlines, granted, I cannot imagine how busy and how worried they must be right now. But thinking about, all right, at some point, things are going to come back. What could we do? And I guess this would be the reverse engineering model. Think about, all right, 
let's go all the way down this funnel and think, who is our customer? What is their concern right now? And how do we meet that concern? And it's funny because talking about it, it may seem like such a basic, obvious philosophy, but what do you think is say causing, let's take airlines for an example, because you're right, I haven't really seen this from any airline. How is there not somebody on one of their Zoom meetings going, hey guys, I think this is how we really need to start thinking about things. I think they're just too big. It's, it, it's that challenge of when you get to a certain size and scale, if you make a change, you have to be able to quantify it very quickly. And so if you are not seeing a return very quickly, you have to scrap it. And they don't want to do anything at a time when they're like, we don't even know if we can keep the lights on. And I do respect that. But if you don't even know if you can keep the lights on, you better be thinking outside the box. I mean, I'm making this up as I go, but imagine if they would have recruited 100 influencers around the world to become brand ambassadors that say, hey, you can't travel right now, but we're going to bring the travel to you. You could do that by, by interest. You could do that by generation. So you could have your Gen Z one and your millennial one and your Gen X one and a boomer. But this idea of like, that's free. For an influencer to be able to say, I work for XYZ airline doing these things and their pay is, is travel credits quite frankly, like that's a cool campaign. It's digital. It is using people that you want to watch. It's creative. It has speed to market. It gives people a reason to still feel engaged and loyal to what you're doing. Every company has the ability to rethink what content means. Part of it is make the website easier. Like UI and UX, that is part of content. Don't make it harder for me to figure out something. Like I literally, um, I'm showing some stripes, but as the election was growing nearer, I decided I did not want to be here for the election. I have a spouse who is addicted to CNN and I just didn't want to do it, right? From an anxiety. And you know, I've worked in politics, but... um, I'm helping you segue, by the way. Um, <laughs> I see, yes. But uh, like, I wanted to get away. So I was looking on um, the two carriers that I have all my miles to see what is still open that I can fly to. And what, like, it was so complicated, I just gave up. Like, if you're going to make it hard for me to still try to be loyal to you and want to participate in whatever it is you do, it, then you right now loyalty means zip 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 you can't rest on your laurels and say we had you with your frequent flyer miles or with your uh uh you know your premier club access none of that matters anymore every single company has to rethink from scratch how they communicate what they communicate what is important why they do it, who they do it through. And that takes literally someone walking away from this is how it's done and go up to a 10,000 foot level to say, wait a minute. Yeah, 
and even outside of brand strategy. Um, Patrick, as you very kindly teased the segue here, um, (laughs) thinking that same exact philosophy, but applying it to content. Um, Right now, obviously, the DNC convention for 2020 was unlike anything that uh, has ever occurred for obvious reasons to everything we're discussing. Um, I know that you're a producer for the 2020 DNC. So what is that process like? And especially in COVID, because talk about a situation that's going to require you to think creatively. You cannot, I mean, in every situation to what you're saying, you have to think creative. You have to think outside the box. But this year you're forced into it. There is no such thing as being anything but creative and unique. So how did that philosophy follow over into the 2020 DNC? Well, Ricky Kirshner, who was the executive producer, is an amazing, amazing man. And the people that he surrounded himself with are really interesting. And they really thought through, and quite frankly, um, the president-elect, he had a very savvy media team as well. Um, and when you combine all those people, knowing that we couldn't do the same thing now, they did, they were ready to still have a lot of it be live and port in people that didn't want to fly in. So that was a pretty last minute decision to get him, to keep him in Wilmington. Like that wasn't the way it was originally supposed to be. Um, and I think for a first time ever trying to do something of that scale remotely, I think it was unbelievably well done. I will say the RNC from a visual standpoint did some stunning things. I mean, some of those things they did at the White House uh, or the things they did out in the field were gorgeous because they wanted to, they wanted to amp it up and they had great producers. But this whole idea of we can do a remote convention, um, yeah, I mean, what is it? Necessity breeds... Necessity is the mother of invention. Um, and I, I do think that that is the case. I mean, we did a, to, to launch night one, we did this virtual choir where we had uh, one person from every state and territory. And we had three weeks to cast, shoot, edit, and get that on air. And that took a monumental, the, the, um, the, the, the people that created the choir, that cast the choir, I, they're amazing. But we had to audition. We then had to teach them all how to self-film. And they were only self-filming their part. Um, we had to cast their colors. We had to approve every single backdrop to make sure they could all mesh. Um, then that all had to come in and be stitched together to create a ensemble that actually sounded good together and looked good together, who went where and who was on the fourth card and who was on the second card. We recast a soloist with three days to go. Had to find him, shoot him, edit him in in three days. So like, it's not cheaper going remote by any means. But it did breed some really, really cool and innovative things. And then we've started to see even more. There was a a beautiful special uh, that had, I think it was Jennifer Hudson, up on a roof in Chicago with a drone filming her at sunset. I mean, no one would have thought about doing that 
Yeah. A year ago. And now, unfortunately, it's becoming ubiquitous. Everybody's doing it. Everyone's copying you. You yeah. were you were a trendsetter. Um and now I guess now we're going full circle here. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because you did bring up earlier in the conversation that you shouldn't go out there and try to put yourselves in positions that you just do not have the experience for. And when we talk about the experience, I wonder, would you and the rest of the team that was putting this together had been so competent in creating something that is so exceptionally unique and really has never been done mm -hmm. if there wasn't such a, a diverse, you know, just a, quite an array of experiences for all of your careers. And that yep. really comes from not following that linear path. Well, I think it's interesting because some really are great at what they do. I mean, Ricky Kirshner is the is a genius at live and big spectacle events. So you could say that he has trained himself up in a certain path, but he's done a lot of other things too. Um, I think that it was a, I, I feel very blessed to have taken, had a very, and I won't make it very clear, I had a very small role compared to the overall. There were so many production companies that were doing that and so many producers and so many editors. But um, when you don't have time, you know, it's that time, talent, treasury, pick two. Well, we didn't have a lot of time. So you had to spend a little bit more and have ridiculously talented people that were willing to think outside the box and invent stuff on the fly. And if it didn't work, try something different. And um, yeah, no, it was great. I don't think they, it should now become the status quo um, for everything. But I think that we've proven over the last nine months, we have proven that you can create compelling content regardless of, of venue or you can create compelling content that still engages, that is fun to watch, that people will get behind or listen to or whatever, and it's not going to be done the way that we always did it. You know, we're not going to get eight people in a – we're not going to get a choir to fly to Philadelphia to sing. Like We're not going to do that. We're going to have to invent a way to make that happen. And I think the more that you see that, the – you know, we, this has been a really interesting moment in time the last nine months in terms of proving what happens if you allow yourself to be creative. Yeah. And what all of that really hinges on is not starting with the what, not starting with the content, but instead really starting with, and to what you're saying, this applies to companies, it applies to political events, it applies to individuals starting with the why, then working your way back from there. Yep. I, 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 I've created a zealot. I love that. Um, yeah, because there are a lot of creative people out there. If it's the what, you're, you're fishing a very fished out pocket. No matter who you are, no matter what you do, I'm sorry, it doesn't matter who you are. Unless, again, you are a brain surgeon. And even then, some would argue that there's always a better brain surgeon. Well, I guarantee you in marketing, communications, PR, uh, entertainment, you know, any kind of media, ad advertising, you are replaceable. So creativity in and of itself doesn't mean a lot. There's always someone 
younger or not necessarily younger, but cheaper, faster, smarter, more creative that is willing to take risks than you. We get very comfortable and we get really worried about if I do something out of the box, I might lose my job. So people stop taking risks. It's one of the reasons I love college sports more than pro. Because in college, people are willing to take the risk so they can get in the pros. Once in the pros, they're like, whoa, I don't want to take that risk because I have a contract. I get it. I respect that. But every once in a while, thank God there are these times like now that are forcing people out of their comfort zone, take the risks, figure out a new way to work, quite frankly, figure out a new job because so many people are out of jobs. If, if $13 billion has been lost just from the industry media giants since March, that's $13 billion worth of jobs that people are having to reinvent and rethink what they do, how they do it, why they do it. So shame on any company, be you a vendor of a company or the company that's the end product, shame on you if you're saying, well, we're just going to keep doing it the way that we're doing it because we can that is not an acceptable answer anymore, in my humble opinion. No, 100%. Um, God, well, Patrick, this is very informative. I'm glad we could go over all this. And, and as we wrap up here, is there anything else you want to touch on or any other point you want to drive home? I feel like we've really gone into it. I, I'm very happy with the way you've been able to elaborate on things. But is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? No, I, I, I guess my, my last point is really to give people permission to try. It doesn't have to be your job. It might be your side hustle. It might be the thing that you do. You might advise. You know, I started getting out of media because I started advising friends and their companies on the side. And I realized, ooh, I'm, I could do that. And I love it. So be willing to zig, be willing to zag. Learn what you need to know. Be humble enough to say, I don't know something and just try. You're not going to get, there's no guarantees in the world. There is no get rich quick. There is nothing that goes viral. Something goes viral, as we know from the last nine months, something goes viral because it accidentally goes viral. You can't, you can't intend it to happen. Um, so, Work your craft, figure out how you want to do, and you know, quite frankly, be willing to ask questions. I mean, I'm I'm honored to have this conversation because I am not the smartest person in the world, but I definitely am fervent in my belief, and I have enough track record that I I actually believe that what I'm saying is right. Absolutely. Well, fantastic, Patrick. Uh, I'm glad we could go over all of this and. We will talk soon. All right. Look forward to it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tube Circuit. Please subscribe for more deep dives and interviews on the direction of digital media.